of a truth, man was created to have fellowship and to worship God. When God created us, He had that in mind, that you and I would give Him praise and honor and worship. In fact, you and I were created special. I don't know if you realize that or not. Hopefully you do. But we are what we often call the crowning work of God's creation. He stamped upon us His very image. When it came time for God to create humankind, we hear God make that statement, let us make man after our image. And so we're different than all other created things, whether it be animals, plants, whatever God has created. He has stamped a little bit of Himself uh, upon us as it relates to His image. And when people do not worship God, they are simply not fulfilling God's plan for them. We read in Romans chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 that God made Himself very known through the things that He has created. Listen to these two verses. It says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. No one can rightly say, there is no God because I see no evidence for God. Because God has put it out there. Just step outside the door. <laughs> and you see the evidence of God's handiwork. So why is it that people want to suppress that truth? That which just seems very clear in Scripture, people want to suppress this. And I believe this is the reason. Other than sin, right? And the sinful nature that we have. But if a person is to acknowledge that God is creator and that God is all-powerful and that, is, that God is sovereign and that He sustains all things, then you also have to acknowledge that same person would have to acknowledge that God, that means God is over me and God is sovereign over me. And some people don't like that. They don't want to think that they're accountable to anybody, let alone God. And so men love to suppress this truth about who God is. But here's a truth. Regardless of how a person feels about God or even thinks about God, it doesn't change the fact that He is the sovereign Lord. Amen. He is overall. He is Creator. You can deny that if you wish, but only to your own eternal detriment. If that never changes, right? So, we've come to paragraph 6 in our discussion of this section, which is chapter 22, um, in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. But I thought it would be a good idea before we get into paragraph 6 that we review the first five paragraphs. For after all, it's been two weeks now since we've been in this study. And so it's good to remind ourselves of where we've been so that we can kind of get this flow right into paragraph 
6. By the way, that's a good idea on a practical note to do when you are preaching maybe through a book at your church is to bring reminders of where you've been in the study. Because people tend to get lost in that and they forget a little bit of what's been there. So those reminders are certainly good. So if we think about paragraph 1 of this section of the confession, it talks about nature. And so kind of going back to Romans chapter 1 that we read, nature shows us that there is a God who is good and He is benevolent toward His creation. Therefore, He should be feared, loved, praised, trusted in, and served from the heart. He must be worshipped also in the prescribed way. So we don't get to in invent the ways that we're going to worship God. God has prescribed that for us in His Word. Paragraph 2 talked about uh, worship of the entire Trinity. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with Christ alone being our mediator. We don't need an earthly mediator to take us to the Father. Christ has done that through His death and resurrection. He's provided the means for us now to have a relationship with the Father. A big part of worship is prayer. So in paragraph 3, we read about prayer being made in the name of the Son, helped by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit helps us in our praying and all in accordance with God's will. That's the whole purpose of prayer is to know the will of God. Sometimes prayer is taught in this sense that we twist God's arm till He gives us what we want. But that is a faulty view of prayer because prayer is all about the will of God and us realizing what that will is and doing that. In paragraph 4, we also think about prayer and particularly prayer on behalf of people and all kinds of people, even kings and those in authority. We ought to lift up to the Lord and pray for them. Worship also includes, in paragraph number five, the reading of Scripture. It is good to do public reading of Scripture. Um, it's amazing to me, sometimes you almost hear Christians yawning when you're going to say, we're going to read this passage in the Old Testament. Uh, but yet, this is what God has prescribed us to do in our worship, is to have public reading of Scripture, preaching, then giving a sense of that Scripture, and hearing the Word. You see, when it comes time to the Word being read and preached, there's two things happening, or should be. The man of God is, is preaching and declaring the truths of God, and the people who are sitting in the pews ought to be hearing with ears of understanding that they take in what is being preached or taught on that day. So preaching and hearing of the Word, teaching and singing. And so singing is a good part of our worship that we do. Singing hymns and, and psalms and spiritual songs unto the Lord. And also included in paragraph 5 was the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper as part of our worship. Even fasting and giving of thanksgiving unto the Lord. Uh, we don't think too much about fasting anymore, but it is still something that can be done. And maybe sometimes in our lives, 
should be done to help us really focus in on God and to determine at times His will for us. Even though it is not prescribed that you do it this time of day or whenever, but still something that we can do. Well, all of that then leads us into paragraph 6 where we are. And so let me read that. You've got that on the uh, part of the handout where you see the order of service. So right under that, here is how paragraph 6 reads. It says, Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshipped everywhere, in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily, and in secret each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God by his word of providence calls thereunto. So a lot of words there in that paragraph, but my goal today is to break that down into major headings. Number one will be the platform of our worship to the Lord. And then the second part of this is going to be the places of our worship to the Lord. Now, when I first received this assignment and I began to, to read through this particular paragraph, the first part of that paragraph was a little confusing to me. A lot of wording in there, some awkward phrases that were there. And of course, we can thank the 16, 1689 English speakers who wrote it to us that way. But I did find a more simplified version of the first part of that, which says this. So just kind of rewording it a little bit, maybe to help us understand what is at play here? Under the gospel, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now restricted to or made more acceptable by the place where it is done or to which it is directed. In other words, all the things that we've heard about in worship thus far in this confession, whether it be prayer, whether it be scripture reading, whether it be songs that we sing, or whether it be the administration of the ordinances, none of that is necessarily have to be tied to a building or to a place. But these things can be done in the platform that Jesus gives to us when he spoke to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. So I invite you to turn back there in John chapter 4. And let's think about this chapter, the context of this chapter. You know, Jesus is on a journey going north and uh, he decides to go through Samaria. Now, if you've studied Scripture very long or studied the culture of the day of the first century, most Jews did not venture into the area of Samaria because they were very prejudiced toward the Samaritans because they were a mixed breed of people and most Jews thought those people were unclean so we're not even going to set foot in their land and so you might find yourself going miles out of the way if you wanted to travel north of Samaria such as going into uh, Galilee 
But not on this day. No, Jesus cut a beeline right through Samaria. And the scripture says that he must needs go through Samaria. Well, why must he need do that? It's because the Father wanted him to do that. This was part of the Father's will for him to go and find that woman at the well, speak to her. And the end result, if you read through that chapter, is a great revival that takes place in her hometown. But Jesus engages her in conversation and they begin to talk about different things and Jesus offers to her the, the master illustrator that he was. He offers to her living water. And he says, I can give you living water that you'll never thirst again. Her immediate response is what? Physical water, right? Yeah, give me that so I don't have to keep coming back to this old well. But of course, Jesus, we know, was trying to convey a spiritual truth to the woman at the well. And what he could offer her was something very personal, something eternal, something spiritual. So they engage in these conversations and um, Jesus talks about, you know, different things. She talks about different things. They get on the topic of her sin. And so she is very ready to change that topic at that point. When Jesus reminds her, you know, after he says, hey, go call your husband and come back. And she says, well, I don't have one. He says, yeah, I know you've had five and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. Woo! <laughs> That's a lot to take in on one setting. This stranger knows everything about my life. So she switches the topic to worship. Will you Jews say, go worship on this mountain and we worship on this mountain. But Jesus lovingly corrected her on that. He says there's coming a day when neither that mountain or this mountain will people worship. But as we see the verses there in verses 23 and 24, He says the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers, note that, true worshipers, shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. He goes on to say in verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so twice, He gives that statement, that phrase, worship in spirit and in truth. So what does that mean? So as we think about the platform of our worship, under the Lord, there are two aspects of that platform. The first part of that is in spirit. When we're going to truly worship the Lord, it needs to be done in that way, in spirit. Now, give a little Greek lesson here. So when you look at that phrase in Scripture... It's often going to be categorized if you look at grammar books and things of that nature, lexicons, you look up those words. It's going to be described as a dative noun. And even the, the next one, in truth, both of those dative nouns. But specifically, not just a dative, but when you look at it in context, it is more than just a dative. It is really a locative sense. So it's a dative of location, a dative that shows the sphere in which something ought to take place. 
And the sphere in which our worship ought to take place, first of all, is in spirit. We ought to do it in spirit. But still, what does that mean? Because that shows up all kinds of ways in different churches and in different denominations. Some think in spirit, and they take that to mean sort of a charismatic way in spirit. This means I need to speak in tongues or I need to do something erratic or I need to, to do something that puts myself in a frenzy. Then people will know that I am in spirit. Well, that's not really true. You could be in spirit and nobody really know necessarily that you're in spirit based upon the outward things that are happening around them. When Jesus said in spirit, he was not thinking of a charismatic, erratic sort of way. But he was thinking that worship is truly a dialogue. Worship is a dialogue between my spirit and the spirit of God. And so when we are in spirit and we are hearing the word of God and we are in a, a, a sense of worship, that in spirit idea has to do with we are in tune with what God is trying to say to me. God is speaking to me from His Word and I need to try to understand what it is God is saying. That, that's what we should be doing in worship. All right? Think about a corporate worship. We just had that a couple days ago on Sunday. Hopefully everybody was in church where they should have been on Sunday. And worshiping the Lord, unless you know you were sick or you had some uh, reason why you just physically could not be there. But we should have been there and we should have been in spirit in that worship service. As we heard the Word of God preached and delivered, we should have been asking ourselves to God, God, what are you saying? What does this mean, these words that I'm hearing? And hopefully, the preacher, if he did his job, was conveying that meaning through the study that he had done and through that and through the Holy Spirit's involvement. You were in spirit and you were learning and you were seeing truths that you needed to see. In fact, it says in Revelation 1.10 that John, the writer of the book of Revelation, was in spirit on the Lord's day. It does not mean that he was speaking in tongues and that he was doing something erratic and frenzy. But he was focused on the Lord on that day. Notice he was not at a temple. He was not at a synagogue. He was not at some specific place that may have been designated in that day as a place of worship because he was on exile. He was a on the island of Patmos where he's been sent as if he were a criminal. And that's where he was, on that island, amongst all those criminals, right? It's kind of funny, I share this with my classes. Uh, I found a picture of the island of Patmos. It's kind of, kind of up on the mountain looking down. And um, there is a cruise ship uh, there on the, the shore <laughs> of that island. So today, Patmos is a place you go to take a cruise and, and enjoy yourself. But in John's day, it was a place criminals were sent. And so there is John amidst all those criminals, but yet he was in the spirit 
on the Lord's day. Because worship is a spiritual discipline. And as we engage in worship, no matter the place that we might be, we need to be praying to the Lord to help us in our worship. I'll often pray that in my prayer on Sunday morning as we're preparing for worship and toward the beginning of the service. I'll pray for all those that are present that day that the Lord would speak to them, that the Lord would open their hearts concerning His Word that we might truly engage in the Word. That our thoughts will not be on where we're we eating when we get out of this place or the pot roast I have in the crock pot, I hope it doesn't burn, or any other thing that we might think about on Sunday. We need to be focused on the Word of God because that is why we're there. We're not there specifically just to fellowship with our fellow Christians. So there's a part of that that we do. But primarily, we're there to worship. And we've got to prepare our hearts and our minds for that event. I mean, you just don't plop down and worship just happens. <laughs> no, worship is very intentional and must be done. <laughs> There's a young man in our congregation and I'll talk to him at the beginning of the service and um, I'll often ask him, well, hey, how you doing? And uh, oftentimes his response is, I'm tired. I say, oh, you're, you're tired, huh? My next question, you can probably guess, when did you go to bed last night? <laughs> and his answer is usually two, three in the morning and I say, hmm, wonder why you're tired. <laughs> Maybe on Saturday you need to get a little more rest so you'll be engaged in worship. But we've got to prepare for this. We've got to prepare to get ready in our spirit and in our minds and in our hearts to do those things. And so in spirit is part of the platform that uh, is part of our worship that we do. The other part of it that Jesus says is also in truth. And so while spirit is a part of that, we also focus in on the Word of God and we focus in on truth. And so the same sort of construction in the Greek, another locative usage in the sphere of the Spirit in the sphere of truth is where we want our focus to be. The Bible reminds us concerning the Holy Trinity. In 1 John 5, 6, John says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is truth. And then in Romans 3, 4, the Apostle Paul reminds us to let God be true and every man a liar. And Jesus Himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by or through me. So as we think about worship, going back to paragraph 5, it involves that reading and preaching and teaching and hearing of the Word of God. And so truth becomes a very important aspect to what we do in our worship. In fact, Jesus said that the Spirit would lead us into all truth. When He promised His disciples that the Spirit would come, one of the things the Spirit would do is to lead us into all truth, to help us understand what the truth is. So the Holy Spirit, in essence, in essence becomes our greatest commentator on Scripture. 
Now it's great to have other commentaries that we can refer to things. But really as we're getting down and studying a passage, we ought to be praying that the Spirit will illuminate us concerning the truths that are in that passage that we are studying. And we want that Spirit to be ever a part of our time of worship, no matter the place or where we are. But God's Word should be a central focus of our worship. When we come to church, we ought to expect we are going to be in the Word of God. So prayer and worship, both of those things ought to be prominent in our worship services. It should not be that the church puts on this great concert when we throw a little sermon at the end of it. <laughs> no, the Word of God ought to be the focus of all that we do as we learn who God is and we learn about the Son and who He is and what He's done for us. And so when Spirit and Truth becomes the platform of our worship. And so that is the way the Scripture prescribes us to do that. So what about the place then of worship? Well, according to the paragraph that we read, they mentioned three places that worship can take place. One of those is family worship. And we go back to Deuteronomy for this that we had read for us a while ago. Particularly Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 7. Here we find the instructions to the people of Israel and what they are to do as they enter into the land and begin to settle there. One of the things that should be happening on a family level is that you are to teach them diligently. Teach these statutes unto thy children. Chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. There's one of the givings of the Ten Commandments. So there's truth that's been given there. And we are to teach these things unto our children and shalt talk of them when we sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. So as you get up in the day, as you go to bed at night, as you go throughout the day, are opportunities for teaching and even worship to transpire on the family level. And, you know, notice God even says later, you know, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, as you get toward the end of that, you know, that uh, when you do these things, when you obey these statutes, and you obey these commands, and your son asks you, why do we do this? Boom. Prime opportunity, right? To teach our children why we do the things that we do. I'll throw this example out there, and hopefully Seth will forgive me later. But uh, <laughs> many of you know Seth. He's my son and works here at the seminary in recruiting, also taking classes. Many of you have probably talked to him. But when he was very small, and we were living in Arkansas and pastoring a church over there, we were coming home one night after we had partaken of the Lord's Supper. And Seth is riding in the back seat, and he asked the question, why do you do that? He was talking about the Lord's Supper. Why do you eat that bread together and partake of that cup together? He was inquisitive as to why we do such things. What do you think we did? <laughs> we took that opportunity to teach him what those things represent and what they mean as it pertains to the salvation that Jesus gave us through His broken body 
and through the blood that he shed. It was a teaching moment. And you have several of those throughout life. As you have your children with you and you go throughout life, a long life's way teaching them things. Sometimes at home, getting the family together and having devotionals and reading Scripture. Men, we should take the lead in the spiritual lives of our family. Amen. We should be the one leading in those things and taking those opportunities to worship as a family. But then there's also private worship. We won't take the time to read all these verses for the sake of time as uh, time is getting away here. But Matthew 6, 1 through 6, and verses 16 through 18 talks about some of the things that we can do, such as giving of, of our alms or giving tithes and offerings of praying and even fasting when you get into verses 16 through 18. And Jesus, as He teaches there on the Sermon on the Mount, talks about doing these things in secret. And then your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So there are times we need to be alone in our praying. And we can do private worship as we open the Word of God. And that can take many forms. We read God's Word. We maybe sing a song, maybe a hymn to ourselves. We pray and, and we seek the Lord taking time to have private worship. Sometimes I'll get... Um, uh, tickled when people ask me, uh, do you know a good devotional book that I can use? You know what I'm thinking, right? <laughs> uh, I want to say, well, there is the Bible, of course, uh, that you can use, but I know what they're asking. You know, there are there's some good devotional materials out there that can kind of help me engage in God's Word. But, but really, nothing uh, should come between us and God's Word. There are other tools that we can use that can be very helpful, but we ought to be engaged in the Word of God. As I was preparing this, I thought about our Baptist Expositor. And in our leader's book in the Baptist Expositor, we have a box there, something you can do every day of the week to engage in that passage of Scripture that you'll be studying maybe on that Sunday if you're in a group setting and you as a group are going through this particular study together. But there are things that you can do that can get you focused in on the Word of God where you can have this private worship. And so I encourage you, use Baptist Expositor for that. You can use that men as, as uh, you know, devotionals that you can give to your family. It's, it's geared toward that. And so let's use those things that are out there that, that point us to the truth of God's Word and do that. And then, of course, there is corporate Worship. Now the end of our paragraph says that so more solemnly in the public assemblies. So again, you know, our worship that we do corporately does not need to be this frenzy, erratic kind of thing. Right? It needs to be serious. It needs to be solemn as we worship the Lord and get engaged in God's Word. But we are not to neglect our corporate worship. But I'll hear people neglect that. I'll hear people kind of justify what they do on Sunday as opposed to coming together with God's people. Clearly the Bible teaches us in Hebrews 10, 23-25 that we are not to forsake that assembly of ourselves together. We ought to be faithful to that. In Acts 2, verses 42-47 through you see an example of the church coming together 
breaking of bread and, and hearing of the Word of God. And the church regularly did that and they gathered and we ought to continue that today. But I'll even hear people say, I don't have to go to church. And I guess in a sense, as far as the grammar of that sentence, <laughs> they're right. You don't have to go to church. But should you go to church? That might be a, a better question. And the obvious answer is yes. And I've engaged with people in this kind of questioning and I'll, I'll ask them this question. Do you love Jesus? And usually, especially if I'm talking to a person who claims to be a believer, they'll say, yes, I love Jesus. Then I'll ask them, do you love His bride? And who's Jesus' bride? Well, it's the church, right? You know, if I had somebody who came to me and said, David, I love you and I want to be around you and I want to hang around you and I want to be your friend, but I don't want to have anything to do with your wife. How friendly am I going to be toward that person, right? There's, there's something off there, right? And we would not engage in something like that. But, but yet we say we love Jesus, but then we don't want to have anything to do with His bride, the church. doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so we can get people to think through that and know that corporate worship is necessary and must be done and we must come together and do that. Nothing should trump Sunday morning gathering together of God's people. We shouldn't let anything trump that. Now, there are exceptions when you're sick or maybe you're out of town and, and doing things that, you know, that otherwise you would not normally be doing. But Sunday morning, we ought to be gathered together with God's people. Your children's ball activities should not come in between that. All right? So if your coach says, hey, we're going to do some traveling, we're going to play on Sundays, your response should be, well, we'll be thinking about you as you do that. But we're going to be at church. We're going to be worshiping. We don't worship our children. We worship the Lord. Amen. And we put Him first. And corporate worship should be something that we should long to do. I mean, when Sunday's coming close, we ought to be getting excited and be joyful about the fact that we are going to get to go and hear God's Word preached and delivered to us. And we ought to do that type of worship with great dignity and seriousness. It's not a rock concert or a light show. But again, the focus ought to be on the Word of God. So in closing, worshiping in spirit and in truth does require prayerfulness. It does require preparation. Whether you're doing that alone, whether you're doing that with your family, or whether you're doing that in corporate worship, each of those instances requires some preparation to get focused in on that platform of being in spirit and in truth. So pray to God. The next time you gather for particularly corporate worship, pray to God in your home and ask God to bless you and your family as you head to worship. 
This is something me and my family do every Sunday morning before we leave the house. We gather in the living room, we hold hands, and we pray for that service coming up. It's just important that we prepare ourselves for that moment. Where did I get that? Got that from Disciple Way. <laughs> Disciple Way encouraged me when I was going through the worship discipline when I first experienced it. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. We ought to be doing that. We ought to be making preparation for this moment that I'm going to engage in God's Word. Well, let me close by praying for us that God will help us in our times of worship as we get in spirit and in truth. Let's pray.